The reading tonight on which this message is based is found in Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, followed by Colossians. So we're in Philippians and chapter 4. Begin at verse 10. Philippians 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at the last, your care of me have flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. In whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Amen. Glasses, so, so plenty. <laughs> Thank you. Those who claim to be disciples of Christ are to experience contentment. So, in terms of their lot in this world, <coughs> they're to be content. Whether they have less than other people, or they have more. They are to be satisfied with it. This type of contentment, it's, it's one which brings a great blessing, but it is uncommon. Believers, all believers are too prone to being dissatisfied, being covetous. Paul here sets down an example for us. So he heartily encourages us to find contentment no matter what our circumstances might be. So using his example, I'd like us for all of us to consider whether we are content. In times of need and in times of plenty. I'll endeavour then to tie all that together with reference to the strengthening presence of Christ Jesus. You notice Paul is quite happy here. Well, the brothers and sisters at Philippi have helped Paul financially. And in chapter 2, if you have a look later, you'll see that he told them that our brother Epaphroditus helped me when you hadn't. And that sounds like a bit harsh. But Paul was not criticising them because 
we see in our reading, even in verse 10, it clarifies this for us. Paul says, you wanted to help, but you didn't have the opportunity. That's the difference. But now they have helped him. See how happy he is. Paul, who tells us to rejoice, uh, he's here, he was, he was over the moon, we could say. When, when the people where I worship take some of their own money, hard-earned money, and give it to me, for me and my family, well, I rejoice inwardly, and the effect it has, obviously, it's to, it humbles me. Practically, it means I can go and pay some bills, which is always great. But, you know, the real cause of joy within me is about the act of giving itself. Because like the other Paul, I rejoice because God has stirred the hearts of those people in such a way as to show me that they have genuine Christian love in them. It shows me that they have a biblical understanding that they are to give sacrificially for the work of the gospel in that way. And believe it or not, and I told them this, these type of gifts to another believer, they are, they are treated by God as like an acceptable, sweet-smelling sacrifice to him. When you read verse 11, I thought it sounds a bit awkward. It sounds like, it sounds like Paul is saying this, your gift was great, thanks. Although I didn't need it anyway. So why would, why would he say that? What does he mean when he says I wasn't even in need anyway? Well, he know, we know he wasn't trying to minimize their generosity. He's already said how much he rejoiced. And he thanks them. He wasn't being ungrateful. He wanted to make a point. He wanted to hammer home the need to be content. Now we are meant to be content in many things. But we shouldn't ignore the context. When he talks about contentment here. He's talking about material things. Circumstances. He wants us to follow his example about being content when we have enough and when we have nothing. And he wants us to understand the strength for that is found in, in, in verse 30. It's found in Christ Jesus. Now to reinforce this point, Paul uses this repetition and the, the three elements that he repeats are well, the first thing, he learned something, right? Contentment. Second thing, he exercises this in every situation. The third thing, he presents us with two extremes as examples. And you might, you might want to trace them, but verse 11, I have learned. Verse 12, I am instructed. Verse 11, whatsoever state I am verse 12 everywhere and in all things and in verse 12 he uses words like abased, hungry, in need and he also says abundance, fullness so hopefully no one can misunderstand his point 
He has this attitude and he wants you and I to have the same attitude. Secondly, we're to have this frame of mind no matter what our circumstances are. And then thirdly, whether at one extreme or we're at the other or somewhere in between, we remain content, satisfied with what we have. Paul was a bit like Joseph, I think, because even though Paul, he'd seen dramatic changes in his circumstances from one extreme to the other, he didn't lose this contentment. Both those men knew how to bow before the will of an all-wise God in all peace. You may have spotted, Paul says in verse 12, he's been instructed. The, the, the background to that word is that Paul has learned a secret. Now, that would have got the attention of certain groups in his society, certain religious groups who, well, they believed that knowledge of God was something that you received through initiation into a cult or a mystery group. And this is how you receive knowledge, you see, through these, through these um, societies, if you like. And I think the thrill of that religious way is in the secrecy. Because people, even today, they love secrecy. But I think Paul was deliberately using the language of the, of the um, false religionists. But time and time again, we see Paul, he, he just steals the language of his day. <laughs> and he steals it and he redefines it. He hijacks it. It was his practice to take false religious beliefs and then repackage them to promote Christian doctrine. He does it all the time. He wasn't imparting secrets to his friends. That's not what it was about. He was speaking truths way out in the open. Truths he spoke about, faith in God. He discussed them, he preached them, he wrote them in letters and so on. And by the guidance of God, this particular letter became part of the inspired word of God and becomes available to us tonight. And so what I'd like to do, firstly, is speak about contentment in times of need. How to be content when we are in need. So we've seen Paul use these two extremes of a circumstance. And, you know, we might have everything, we might have nothing. But since we're talking about being content, it sounds to me like advice that's more suitable for people who don't have much. You know, what's that? You've got not much food and you live in a tent. Well, try to be content with your lot. It's the type of thing we would say to people who don't have anything. So it obviously applies to them. Times can be hard. People can struggle financially. I don't know that all of you here today have experienced that. I know I have. Um, but um, I'm guessing some of you will, will know what, what it means to struggle financially. But having said that, there's not many people in this country anyway 
who've genuinely starved for days at a time like Paul. Let's just be honest about that. We just don't see that in this country. And Paul covers some of his experiences in his letter to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11. Uh, and uh, one of the verses is 27. In weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So there were times when Paul was homeless and hungry. He had nothing, honestly, except the clothes on his back. But we know what it's like to be hungry. We know at least what it's like to be hungry, don't we? For some people, for some people, if the dinner is like one hour late, you know, they start to panic. Don't look at me. It's, well, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to be hungry. And that's the way God designed us. That discomfort leads us to go and find food. And then that's how we stay alive. So that discomfort is normal and good. And Christian contentment isn't about trying to pretend that discomfort is, is, isn't real or it's wrong. When Paul was hungry, it was uncomfortable. It was just as uncomfortable for him as us. And when he got hungry, he would, if he had money... He would presumably go down to the, I don't know, cafe, pub, inn thing that they had and he'd get a meal. Or if he was someone's guest, he would, he would hopefully get fed each day. So Paul's point isn't about pretending the discomfort of hunger and thirst doesn't exist or ignoring these alarm signals. His point about contentment is this. When he was in those needful circumstances... He refused to allow those natural desires to turn into covetousness. When we find ourselves in need of food or drink or we have financial hardships, we need to get hold of ourselves and make sure that we don't covet the food, the drink, the money. Now that's not an easy principle to grasp, I find, but there is. There is a difference between wanting something and coveting it, right? So when Paul was thirsty, he really wanted water. Yet he wants us to understand it would never become covetousness. We could think of covetousness as like the opposite of contentment. At the other, other end of the scale from contentment, perhaps. It's an extreme form of desire. Now, it's not bad to want things, is it? It's not bad to want things. But in the extreme, it dominates our thoughts. You might find your heart is given over to this desire, this craving for something. And then you start to think about that more than you do about God. And, well, if something other than God has your affections, you are in a danger zone. Paul wants us to know he was so content with what he had, he genuinely didn't covet the gifts from the Philippian church, even though they helped him. 
Even though those gifts practically helped him and he appreciated them, he didn't covet them. I was speaking a few weeks ago uh, in our place about anxiety, the prevalence of anxiety, um, how we can be inoculated against it. And it looks like Paul's done that. Paul has taken his own advice and it seems he's found a way to not be anxious even when he was in real need. Some of you will be familiar with the Puritan called Jeremiah Burroughs. Now he wrote a number of books. One of the best known was called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel. Now, the title gives that away. So you see, it's not just my opinion. Our Puritan brother seems to think that contentment in believers is so uncommon. He calls it a rare jewel. Now, Puritan books, I found, uh, are full of good content, but it was their style to be, how can I put this politely, thorough, comprehensive, long. <laughs> now, if, uh, I mean, that puts people off, uh, but if you are up to it, I can recommend Jeremiah Burroughs' book about contentment. I thought I might read an extract from it anyway. Remember, we're talking about people who don't have much. He says, It may be you have not such great blessings in earthly places as some others have. But if the Lord has blessed you in heavenly places, that should content you. There are blessings in heaven, and he has set you here for the present, as it were, in heaven, in a heavenly place. The consideration of the greatness of the mercies that we have and the littleness of the things that God has denied us is a very powerful consideration to work this grace of contentment. Revisiting this portion of scripture, it's presented a big challenge to me. Now I can stand here today and tell you what contentment means for a Christian. And I can impress upon you the importance of being content. And I can even declare boldly that to be discontent is sinful. But preaching is the easy part. Trying to apply it to every aspect of my own life is difficult. I want to get to that place where Paul is here. And I, so I can encourage my family and the Lord's people to, to do the same. Our Puritan friend says, we shouldn't look around and make comparisons with other people and declare we should have this or we should have that because everyone else does. That's just wrong. We deserve nothing. We have a right to nothing some of the worst vengeance carried out by God against the people of this world was against his own people when they murmured. This is what I was chatting to Sylvia about earlier. When they murmured, we see some of the worst vengeance. When they said, 
It's not fair. We want this. We want that. If we want something and it's a legitimate desire, we pray to God to supply our need. We pray to God. Then we go out and we carry out all the practical means necessary to get that need. But through it all, we're free of anxiety, free of covetousness, hopefully, and free of ingratitude. Psalm 90 verse 14 says, Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Friends, if we can each day satisfy ourselves with the love of God and treat everything else as secondary, then we just might crack it. We just might become one of those rare jewels of contentment. Contentment is a sign of Christian maturity. For those who are in a position of having very little, there's a rest in their relationship with Christ and trust in him. Who himself was no stranger to hunger and homelessness. The second application is about contentment for those in times of plenty. Contentment in times of plenty. Now, of the two extremes Paul presents to us, this one is the less easy to understand. You might think, if someone has enough money, food and drink, clothing and so on, contentment would arise naturally. But that isn't the case. I probably don't need to tell you this, but people who have plenty tend to always want more and more. And I've had some interesting conversations and well, difficult conversations uh, about this in, in churches. And Christians who are well off but spend their lives trying to accrue more and more, they pose a, a, a problem. Because on the one hand, I have no right to comment on this Christian family's desire for a certain lifestyle. I've got no right to do that. And on the other hand, I feel uncomfortable. If a Christian family is spending untold thousands of thousands of pounds, making their homes more magnificent, while the church that in the church building might be of the plaster coming off the walls and a hole in the roof, like our church. <laughs> it just makes me feel uncomfortable and Maybe there's missionaries who need money. and But then, you know, I have to turn the focus on myself again. That's always more difficult. Because as a citizen of the UK, I'm in the top couple of percent in terms of global wealth. I belong to a rich nation. And that rich nation, well, that wealth to a degree, is shared by people like me. Now compared to people in the UK, that's different, I'm, I'm a little bit near the bottom in terms of wealth, but you know, I've accrued so many possessions 
so much stuff, clothing, that I'm struggling just to get rid of some of it. There isn't a week goes by when my wife Karen isn't driving to the charity shop with bin bags full of stuff and you wonder where it all came from. Sometimes she has to compete with other people to get rid of the stuff. If you don't go early enough, you'll find people getting in before you. Have mine, have mine. Sometimes she has to bring the stuff all back home again. People, they just can't get rid of it quick enough. So, relative to the rest of the people on this planet, I'm well off. When I talk about financial hardship, I'm not talking about my family starving to death. I'm talking about struggling to maintain a lifestyle which is normal for the culture that I live in. What constitutes enough is impossible to say. And I certainly don't have a right to say that to, to any of you. So I can never say, you have enough now. No more. I can't, I can't do that. People can spend their money on a bigger house and a newer car if they want to. It's their money. Um, so what can we say? Well, we can say this. We can encourage each other to avoid the love of material gain. To avoid the love of it. We can remind each other about the dangers of the love of money. Ecclesiastes 5 and 10 says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. People tell themselves when they have a certain amount of wealth, they'll be happy. Experience says otherwise. People who accrue more money tend to want more and more. An extreme example would be <clears throat> these billionaires, perhaps, who <laughs> billionaires who devote their lives to increasing their vast wealth. Now, they can already buy whatever houses and mansions and yachts and cars that they could possibly want and still have hundreds of millions left in the bank. But they always want more. If you don't have much money yourself, you might have little sympathy with people who do. You know, if one of the little, if one of the little children in the royal family was saying, Mummy, Mummy, I only have two ponies, can I have another pony? You'd be saying, oh, poor little rich kid, poor little rich kid. And when you, you'll sometimes meet Christians who've got bags of money, and you probably think it's easy for them to be content, don't you? You think it's easy. Well, here's the surprising thing. It may actually be more difficult to be content when you have plenty. You see, when you have nothing, you lean harder on God. You thank him for every tiny thing that you receive at his hand, but it's not as easy to have that attitude when you have plenty. Now, Christian maturity demands that... We depend on the Lord at all times and in all situations and not only those in which we think we need his help. Some of you might be familiar with um, the idea of what's called a, sometimes called a pyramid of need. So 
you imagine a diagram of a pyramid or a triangle, and at the top, the corner, there's not much room, and that represents a few of the essentials we need in life. Food, water, and in most places, shelter and um, the basics. And then as you go down the triangle and it gets wider, that represents then some of the things that are not so essential, like uh, maybe sanitation, medical care. And as you go down, it gets wider. We start then to see things which are, are not necessary at all. And at the bottom could be all the possessions and pleasures available in this world and not one of them is necessary. They're all luxuries. I'm saying this to get us to think about where we stand and in this country and in this church, we have, we have plenty compared to most people in this world. That's just the truth. Um, today is my 30th wedding anniversary. Now, some of you will think, 30 years, that's a lot. Some of you will be thinking, just an amateur, just an amateur. 30 years. And, I mean, we, we've struggled financially for most of that time. Okay. In other words, I'm not trying to minimise, okay? I'm not trying to minimise financial hardship. I've been there. I get it. It's hard. It puts pressure on your family. But even in the most deprived parts of Merseyside or North Wales, people have places to live in. Their homes are so well built that they keep all the elements out, all the bad weather. They have electricity and gas fed into their homes, giving them lighting and heating and enable them to cook food. They have clean drinking water piped right into their house. And what's more, they don't just use it to drink, they wash in it, clean the dishes in it, and flush their toilets with it. Perfectly good drinking water. What about food? We've all got food in the cupboards right now, have we not? We have food in the freezer, food in the fridge. Usually not just enough for the next meal, but enough to last you for days and days, maybe weeks. I think we have more food that goes off in the fridge and we throw it away than we actually eat. And that, that's just criminal, really. But we have this wide variety of food and it provides all the vitamins and the, the minerals that we could want. We have exotic fruits transported thousands of miles around the planet just so we can enjoy them in our homes. We can even go on our mobile phone and order food and have some guy turn up within the hour with hot food right to our door. And there's such a problem with the amount of food that we are consuming in this country, that it's become a serious health issue. Even in the poorest areas, it's a serious health issue. Are we poor, really? We have plenty of clothes. I've mentioned Karen and her bags of clothes. Well, we have clothes, don't we, for all kinds of occasions. She has multiple handbags for all kinds of occasions. I don't know why she needs all them handbags and shoes. But, you know, we, we've got too many clothes and 
summer clothes and then the winter clothes are coming out and then the wardrobe you can't fit stuff in and you know what the back rooms of all those charity shops are bulging at the seams with donated clothes there's that much being bought and given away in our society even in the poorest areas now look you might think i'm laboring this point about how well off we are but you know i've only i've only mentioned three things i've only mentioned three things that that we here today enjoy if i just carried on i'd be here all day talking about all of the things that we have so so my point is to find where we sit on that spectrum between absolute poverty and absolute wealth, or let me put that another way, that having nothing and having plenty, that's what I mean. Where do we sit on that spectrum? We're there. We, we, we're there on the end of the spectrum where we have plenty. We have plenty. And I wanted to establish that so I can make the primary point for people like us, who enjoy a multitude of God's mercies, to murmur about our situation is a serious sin. Let's hear from Jeremiah Burroughs again. He says, For men and women to be discontented in the midst of mercies, in enjoyment of an abundance of mercies, aggravates the sin of discontent and murmuring. To be discontented in any afflicted condition is sinful and evil, but to be discontented when we, were in, when we are in the midst of God's mercies, when we are not able to count the mercies of God, still to be discontented because we have not got all we would have, this is a greater evil. You see then, friends, that we are in more danger because we have enough. When we covet, when we abandon contentment, that's a sin by itself. But for us to complain, we who receive plenty from God just aggravates the sin, makes the sin far worse. And I would encourage your friends to avoid that. Hebrews 13 and 5 says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We're to be content. And if we do have an abundance, remember this, the Lord loves to see you give it away. <laughs> when you give, it blesses you it blesses the other person and it even blesses God. Do you believe that? Here's our third point, which is that contentment is found in Christ alone. So if you look again at verse 13, it talks about the one who Paul got his strength from. It's pretty obvious who Paul's talking about. His strength comes from the Lord You'll see it's translated here as, I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. It can also be translated in. Uh, I think that one's preferable because Paul 
Yeah, he uses that one so much about being in Christ. And you see, it's because of that union between him and the Lord that he's able to draw on this strength constantly. As long as Paul was in close communion with God through being in Christ, no situation would ever cause Paul to descend into the sin of being discontent. <clears throat> I'm aware in verse 13. Verse 13, I can do all things. Well, verse 13, I think it's been misunderstood a lot. Verse 13, it's, um, this is the trouble when you take a verse and say, well, it is God's word after all, and perhaps you go and buy a, a little sign off eBay with that verse and you put it on the wall to, so you can look at it each day. And if you did that with this verse, I can do all things through Christ, why you would think you were... You would think you were all powerful. You would think anything was possible to you as a Christian. That's clearly not true. That is clearly not true. God never said that you'd be able to do anything if you had his help. You know? And the verse is not meant to be understood um, in that general way. We have to look at where it lies in the scriptures right here. And we, I think we could justifiably uh, render this verse as... I can do all this, I can do all this in Christ who strengtheneth me. All that Paul's been talking about. There are other places where Paul talks about God's power, enabling them to do other things, but here it's about those situations he finds himself in. I wanted to mention this detail. I was not sure whether to mention this, but to talk about what Paul means when he says, I have learned, I have learned, he says. I've lost it now. Don't get old, mate. <laughs> Verse 11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, he says. I have learned, and I suppose it's natural to assume that uh, he meant that this attitude of contentment was learned gradually over many years, and I'm not saying that's not true in some respect. You know, the, the source of all our power and our energies is from God, but we're still told to expend effort, acting, you know, in a, in a righteous fashion. And if, if we do that, we should expect to see positive changes as we go on in our Christian walk. But what's interesting here, the word Paul chose to use for learned, it suggests something different. It suggests something that was received at his conversion. It might sound unusual. It suggests that he, he received this thing, this knowledge about contentment at his conversion. And then there was a ripple effect from that. There's a ripple effect which continued throughout his life. Now I know that sounds like a, a very small difference, but I think we should take notice of it because it puts the emphasis on the power of God revealed to Paul initially on the road to Damascus. 
and then becoming this all-sufficient source of contentment. Paul wants the, the careful Bible student to know that he didn't arrive in this state of contentment through years of self-discipline using his own strength. It required discipline, but God gets every scrap of glory for Paul's unusual ability to be content. In another one of his letters, Paul says the strangest thing. He says, uh, when he's weak, when he is weak, he's somehow stronger. We won't go, in, we won't go into that today, but he says something similar here. The word content in verse 11 really means self-sufficient. Now, hang on, doesn't that contradict what we said a minute ago about relying on God? It's another one of those mysterious sayings of Paul. Not only is he strong in his weakness, but he's most independent when he's dependent. Maybe that sounds a bit muddled. Let me try again. When he describes himself as self-sufficient, he means he's detached from his circumstances. They don't dictate what his attitude is. When the circumstances are bad, he doesn't start complaining to God, for example. So again, he's most independent of his circumstances when he's dependent on Christ the Lord. Well, you've done well to um, you've done well to stay focused there this evening, brethren. I'll finish off in a moment. I think we should hear one last time from our guest Puritan today, Jeremiah Burroughs. He says that to be that to be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory. And excellence of a Christian. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, warmly encourages you and I to be content with what we have. To focus on our relationship with God above everything else. To avoid anxious covetousness when we're in need and to avoid a casual covetousness when we are in plenty. First Timothy chapter 6 and verses 6 to 8 says Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, food and clothes, let us be therewith content. So may God help all of us to have Paul's confidence in the power of the Lord to be able to give us that most blessed gift of Godly contentment. Amen. Amen.